0: Glory be to the Father.
1: As we've entered the autumn season, it's also the time when we're back in full swing of school, whether students are doing school through email or e-school or whatever they call it now online, or they're actually attending school. Regardless, we're back at school and it's autumn, it's fall, it's beautiful. So since we're going back to school, a lot of times what's important or helpful and sometimes necessary is review, review. So we're going to review a little bit today. We're going to review some of the basic questions, often asked questions. going to revisit them. And those are the questions that whenever people come to one of our churches, a church of the Eastern Rite, such as my Byzantine church, they'll come in and they'll ask about certain things. And it's interesting that no matter what I might explain to them, whatever the topic may be that I'm talking about, theology, history, whatever, they will generally ask about the same thing. And usually at the end of the talk, why do you have three bars in your cross? Why are there peacocks on your icon screen? What do they mean? It's amazing. They'll always pick those things out, no matter what the subject is. I always found that fascinating. It's good. I'm glad they ask questions. But I always found it really fascinating that they always come back to basically those two questions. They have other questions as well. So we're going to do some review, kind of a going back to school and doing some review here. So let's take that first question. Why Do we have in some Byzantine Catholic churches a three barred cross with the bottom bar, which is the third bar, slanting, slanting upward instead of diagonal? Why do we have that? Maybe some of you have seen that. Sometimes the cross has three bars and also what I would call three scallops on the end of the bars. In other words, it looks like three half circles on the ends of the bar. Why is that? Well, the three scallops are a little bit redundant because you've got already three bars. Because the three, of course, always represents the Holy Trinity. We're very, very Trinity conscious in the Eastern churches. If you ever notice, whenever we pray, we always end our prayers, and we also lead into them by invoking the Holy Trinity, not just Jesus Christ. For instance, in the Eastern churches, you usually don't end a prayer by saying, we ask this through Jesus Christ, or in the name of Christ, or "In the Lord's name, and so on. That's perfectly legitimate. Perfectly legitimate, of course. More common in the West. But in the East, what we do is we always end, and we have prayers that lead up to other prayers, but these beginning prayers and the ending of a prayer— always invokes the holy trinity father son and holy spirit now and ever and forever amen or unto ages of ages amen that's how we end our prayers so the number three is repeated in the eastern churches a lot it's on the cross the traditional cross of what we call byzantine catholic churches it's also seen on the crosses of the russian churches the russian orthodox churches or even russian catholic churches not all Eastern churches have a three-bar cross, but my particular church does, the Russian churches do. In other words, some of the Slavic churches use a three-bar cross. Not all, but some of them. It's very distinctive. It's something that people always ask about. So three bars representing the Holy Trinity. But what else do they represent? The top bar, and I'm talking about the horizontal bar, it's a little bit shorter than the other bar. It represents, very practically speaking, very obvious, it represents the inscription. Remember, the Romans put the inscription, in other words, the crime that Jesus was crucified for. He claimed to be king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, king of the Jews. You often see this on traditional crucifixes where it's abbreviated either in Hebrew or Latin or Greek. So Jesus Christ, king of the Jews. Then in the next bar, the next horizontal bar down, the longer one, that is, of course, where Jesus Christ was stretched out on the cross, arms outstretched. But the third bar would be where his feet are, his footstool, but it's slanted. It's slanted or diagonal. It slants upward, and again, it's down by his feet. It slants upward to the right of Christ as you are on the cross with Christ, not when you're looking at it, but from the right of Jesus Christ himself. The bar points upward, kind of slants upward diagonally, which means the other half of the bar slants downward. There's a few meanings for this. First of all, the origins of this is often considered to be from iconography. Iconography does certain little tricks to communicate something, to communicate a different view, the view into eternity. So it reverses the perspective. In natural perspective, when we look, for example, imagine you're standing on railroad tracks. You look down the railroad tracks and you see that the railroad tracks, if you look far enough, they seem to converge way, way down on the horizon to a point. And they open up wider and wider as they come towards you. Well, iconography reverses that. Because the idea is that when you look at an icon, you're looking into something that is like a window into eternity, which means your view becomes progressively wider, not more narrow. In fact, the narrow point is you, where you're standing. So the perspective is actually reversed. So we're looking outward from our limited perspective into a wide, infinite perspective when we look at an icon. Now, that reversing of the perspective is oftentimes theorized as to really the real origins of the third bar cross. Because the way you paint it, when you paint it that way, it can look somewhat like a slanted bar because you're inverting the perspective. But the symbolic meaning for that third bar, slanted as it were, is that it points upward towards the good thief of Jesus Christ, the good thief that went to heaven because he repented. The other half of it, of course, would naturally then point downward where the other thief is who did not repent, and so presumed was maybe not saved. But it also forms, if you can imagine this, take a cross, a standard regular cross with just one bar, two bars, actually a vertical, of course, and a horizontal, a, a very traditional simple cross, and turn it upside down, or kind of turn it on its side. That shape is what the slanted bar also creates by being slanted against the vertical bar. And what that indicates is the way that some of the apostles like Andrew and Peter were crucified at their own request, tradition says, upside down. In other words, they felt unworthy to even be crucified the same way as Christ. Imagine they're going through this torture and this death, this terrible death, and it wasn't terrible enough for them. They said that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our master, the Messiah was crucified this way. We're not even worthy to be crucified like that. And during the crucifixion was humbling enough they went even further. So, at their request, according to tradition, St. Peter and St. Andrew requested to be crucified upside down or crossed in a sense on its side. So, it forms that diagonal, almost like an X pattern. So, these are some of the symbolisms of the three barred cross. They're often seen on the tops of the domes or towers on the exterior of a Byzantine church, but they're certainly used often inside as well they are also one around the neck. They're on prayer books. They're all over the place, you know, how the cross is. The cross is the Christian logo. So it appears everywhere in all kinds of forms. So, so too it is in the Byzantine church with the three-barred cross. Now, what about the other most often asked question when people come to visit a Byzantine church? The question is, why are there peacocks on the icon screen? The icon screen, of course, is that barrier between the sanctuary. It sets the sanctuary off from the nave but it's a very decorative barrier. It's actually a larger version, in a sense, of the communion rail. For those of you who remember the traditional Latin Rite Catholic churches, they had a communion rail that divided the sanctuary from the nave. Nobody went past the communion rail, only the servers or the ordained ministers. Same thing with the icon screen of the Byzantine church. The icon screen divides the sanctuary from the nave. And on that icon screen, are painted icons, many icons. The icon screen has three sets of doors on it as well. On many icon screens, you'll see, in addition to the icons and the doors, you're going to see a symbol painted or carved of a peacock. And people always ask why. At my church, I painted some peacocks on the outside of the church. I painted some icon murals on the outside of our church, as well as the inside. And on some of the windows, these are murals over the windows that I painted recently— I painted a peacock. The peacock is an ancient Byzantine symbol for immortal life, or eternal life. Very decorative. It fits in very well with some of the arched motifs of our architecture and the icon screens. So the Mister Peacock fits in very well in our art and architecture in our church. But it means immortal life. It goes way back to the Byzantine Empire. Now, the other most often asked question, at least from my experience, is this. Why do you have the icon screen up there? We can't see the priest. Now, for those of you who have never seen a Byzantine church interior, the icon screen, what I'm referring to, is like a wall. It's a solid wall, but it has, as I mentioned, three sets of doors on it. Now, this icon screen can actually be designed in various ways. Some icon screens aren't completely solid, but they do stretch from end to end, in other words, when you're talking widthwise, in other words, from left to right, they do stretch all the way across the sanctuary. So they do block the sanctuary entirely. It's just that some icon screens can be very elaborate, very solid, like a solid wall, and some can be more open in their design. But nonetheless, it goes wall to wall, which would be, liturgically speaking, north to south, because you face east, the altar is facing east, so that it would be north to south, or if you want to call it left to right, in front of you, across the sanctuary. That icon screen hides the sanctuary, conceals it, prevents people from going into the Holy of Holies, because it is the Holy of Holies. And in the Old Testament, the rule was that only the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, but once a year, for the holiest reasons, to offer sacrifice on behalf of himself and the people. And so the Byzantine architecture picked that same idea up and set the sanctuary off from the rest of the church. The Holy of Holies now hosts the holiest of all things, the tabernacle with the body of Christ in it, the consecrated bread present always in the tabernacle. So there is that concealing. It's a sense of mystery, but mystery also reveals. So there are icons on the icon screen as though we're seeing those who are in heaven coming towards us. Christ, the Virgin Mary, the angels and the saints. Christ, the Virgin Mary, the angels and the saints. When we come back, we're gonna talk more about our little review as we return back to school. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And
0: to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. New from EWTN Publishing, A Crisis in Culture, How Secularism is Becoming a Religion by Father George Rutler. In this timely and penetrating book, Father Rutler shows how the West's decade long cultural assault against Christianity is finally reaching its inevitable conclusion the self destruction of our culture and society. In Father Rutler's book, discover why the Catholic faith is the only means by which civilization can be restored, the difference between nostalgia and tradition, why the 20th century produced more martyrs than all previous Christian centuries combined. And what happens when we let the government, rather than the church, become our mother? These are some of the insights you'll gain in A Crisis in Culture. How Secularism is Becoming a Religion. Available now at EWTNRC.com. By Catholic. Shop EWTNRC.com. You're you're listening to Father Thomas Loyan on, on
1: Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyo, your host. We're going back to school, and we're starting with a review—a review of often asked questions, which we've often treated here in Light of the East. Although some of you may be new listeners or haven't listened for that long, maybe never heard these explanations. So that's why we are reviewing, kind of getting all the class in session, getting everybody on the same page, so we can all move forward and be a students. So today we review some of the most often and very commonly asked, they're basically simple questions, things that seem to be obviously different at first sight of Eastern churches and their art, architecture, liturgy. The next most often asked question, again, at least I'm qualifying this, at least from my experience as a priest, the next most often asked question is, why does the priest have his back to the people? In the Eastern churches, the, especially the Byzantine church, such as mine is, the priest faces east. The churches are supposed to be oriented east. So the priest stands at the altar, facing the altar. And so by default, his back is towards the people, because the people also are facing east. It's like that old proverb, is the bottle of vodka half empty or half full. That's the difference between an optimist and a pessimist, symbolically speaking. So is the priest back to the people, or is he and all the people together facing east? How do you want to term that? The better way to term it is that the priest is facing east, and by default, his back will be towards the people. Remember, the people are also facing east as well. He faces east because that was the ancient tradition, you know, the place of the rising sun, because Jesus is the light of the world. So symbolically that where the sun rises, and also of Christ being light of the world, resurrecting. So it's very appropriate to face east. It's also where, of course, Christ came from when God became incarnate on earth. It was in the Middle East, which would be an eastern direction for those of us in America. So we face east. It's not so much that the priest back is to us, it's it's the fact that he's facing east. In connection with the Old Testament and the early Christian churches, in the Eastern churches, most Eastern churches, the orientation of the priest ad orientum, which means towards the east, never changed. And some it did, but it never changed after Second Vatican Council. We remained as we were for centuries and as we are today. It would be essentially impossible. It would really be totally out of the integrity of the rest of the liturgy for the priests in the Eastern churches to face the people. However, in both the Eastern and Western churches, the priest does face the people, but at certain times. You see, when the priest stands at the altar in the sanctuary, he is standing in a continuity with the Old Testament high priest who entered the sanctuary, as I mentioned, but once a year, entered the Holy of Holies, which was considered to be like a nuptial bedroom, where the bride Israel would await the meeting, the coming of the bridegroom Yahweh, in the sanctuary, that they would call it the tabernacle. So only the priest enters the sanctuary, along with the servers and any other ordained minister, such as subdeacon or deacon. And so there's a continuity in the Byzantine churches, architecturally, liturgically, with the Old Testament Temple. And having that area that is set apart from the rest of the church is actually very relevant to us, something we really need to experience in this day and age. As I always say, the church is the place where we immerse ourselves in God's truth, in the order of creation, in the blueprint for life. It's in the liturgy. And if we're facing east and we have this sense of the sanctuary set apart, what that's giving us... This is part of that blueprint for life. It's giving us a very palpable sense that we literally immerse ourselves in, a sense of what is holy, what needs to be deferred to by us, which we just can't approach, like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. No one could touch the Ark when it was being carried into its new place. And the person that did, remember that story in the Bible where the ark was starting to slip off of the donkey that they were carrying it on when they bring it to its new place, its final place, and somebody lunged at it and tried to stop it from falling off. And they were struck dead immediately because God said, no hand shall touch this Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant was a foreshadowing, a type of the Virgin Mary, whom no man could touch, not even Joseph. She was, of course, totally virginal. So nothing or no one could touch her or defile her and so on. So the Ark of the Covenant is the foreshadowing of that. So we have the Holy of Holies, where the tabernacle is, that only certain designated persons can go. Again, this gives us a much-needed sense of, I'm going to call it deference, that there is something greater than us, something we turn to, where we're oriented towards the holy of holies, and we dare not go because we are not worthy. Now, we don't like that in our world today, which is all the more reason we need it. We think we're entitled to go anywhere, march up there at the altar, come in and out, do whatever you want. Everybody's equal. Everybody gets to share. Everybody gets to do something. Everybody gets to play, and the priest just kind of does his little minimal part. That's not how it is. It's not liturgy. Liturgy has a true sense of propriety, a true sense of propriety, of order. And that order is a blueprint for life. There's order in heaven. Yes, there's hierarchy in heaven. Yes, there is. Imagine, there's a hierarchy in heaven from the angels on down. And so it is in our liturgy. And so it is in life. There's always something, a hierarchy, something that is greater than we are and something beneath that that's also great, but maybe not as great, et cetera, et cetera. This sort of verticality is a fact of life. It's a fact of all institutions, and it's certainly a fact of the church. So this idea of something greater than us that we defer to by not entering in there because we're not authorized, it's not so much that we're not worthy personally, it's that we're not authorized to enter into this holy of holies. So it is appropriately set off. You see, what's lost today is that sense of, of authority, that there's a body of truth laws, rules, whatever you want to say, that is greater than we are, that is there for the good of all, and so we all must defer to it. That's been very much lost today, and that's why we have so much chaos, so much sense of entitlement, of demanding, suing, being offended. This all comes to the fact that there's nothing greater than us. There's only me. You're not better than me. You know, you put your pants on the same way I do, I hear people say. Well, it's not about being personally better. It's about the order of things that works well when it's followed. So, church gives us this blueprint, and one of those aspects of the of this blueprint is that incredible sense of awe, of reverence for that which is greater than we are. And we have to do that. We need this. So, we oftentimes have to look at ourselves as human beings, and this is where we look at ourselves through the lens of the liturgy, because the liturgy tells us who and what we are as human beings, what we really are. And we are creatures who are made the image and likeness of God. We are made for worship. A lot of things we were made for that exist in church. So if we don't go to church, we don't actually experience our full humanness, that's right. We are most fully human when we were at the liturgy, especially the Eucharistic liturgy in the church, we are. And so to understand our place in the hierarchy of things is is essential, not only for our salvation, but for our home life for institutions, for government, for society. If everybody knew their place, and this doesn't mean we're all serfs, we're all slaves at the same bottom-low level. It means that there are things and something, in other words, God, greater than we are. And we do well, it actually works to our advantage to acknowledge that, to defer to that. And we don't get that in very many places in our world today. But it's interesting, in the courts, you know, the legal courts, where they have a jury and a judge, Don't they still rise when the judge walks in? Yes, all rise. What does that mean? And what does he do? He goes up onto a high bench, high. Not low, not on the same level as everyone else, a high bench, a high seat, and we all stand. Why? Because we acknowledge, we defer to his stature, the stature of his office. Well, if we could do that for a secular court and a judge, why can't we do it then for God himself? And liturgy teaches us that. It gives us that immersion. And beyond liturgy, it's very rare to find that kind of deference today, that sense of hierarchy and order. So much to review. We didn't get to all of it today, just like a good classroom, a good teacher. There's so much to teach. We can't always get to it in the same day, we'll pick it up another time. So welcome back to school. I hope the review was worthwhile for you, maybe familiar to you. Stay tuned for the rest of our school year. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit
0: ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. News from around the world as it happens. Religious liberty, immigration, prayer, plus daily reports from the White House, Capitol Hill, and Rome. Get the
1: Catholic news perspective on the things that impact your life on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.